The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I hope you all got a handout. Um, We're going through uh, some teaching that I did to a much smaller group uh, some time ago based on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology on uh, church government. It's a good overview of some of the main topics uh, that we're going to want to go through. And then we're going to zero in uh, in this uh, course, not tonight, but in due time, on specific practical issues with elder life, polity of uh, uh, elder, plurality of elders as a polity, various uh, uh, practical things, historical things as well, um, answering the question, uh, but is it Baptist? You know, people ask that question. Are we becoming Presbyterians here? Is that what's going on? You know, uh, we've got that... Uh, kind of closet Calvinism going on, an undercurrent here in the church. No one will talk about it, but, you know, there's a sense that maybe there's some Calvinism going on here. Now we're going to elders. Are we becoming Presbyterians? What's happening here? So, um, no, we are not. Um, and so there is a good historical argument uh, uh, in many, not most, not I wouldn't say most, but many Baptist uh, congregations in the past and in the present of this kind of polity. And so I think we're going to be excited to look at that. Um, and uh, my pattern in this in this class is that we're going to teach. I'm going to teach for a while, and then just stop, uh, maybe uh, even a mid-topic, and give time for discussion and questions. Um, so your job will be to think of good discussions. Um, I'd like to ask that those discussions come from a variety of people, because different people have different kinds of questions. So if you ask a question, then give a bunch of other people a chance to ask a question. Uh, before it comes around to your second uh, question, if we could do it that way. But I think it'd be good for us to discuss these things together as a church. Uh, I believe with all my heart that this polity can be uh, found in the New Testament. Uh, It's not a house of cards. It's not a house of of sugar or something that if we pour a little water on it, it's going to evaporate or melt. It will stand the closest scrutiny because it comes from Scripture. Um, And I think the motives are clear that we desire to be faithful to the New Testament, to be faithful to uh, New Testament church government. We are not saying that our present church government is uh, wrong or anything that we can't function that way. The church has functioned this way for for years. Um, It's not it. And that if the church, uh, in its own wisdom, chooses not to change the polity in August, we will not die. We will not cease to be a church. We will continue. Um, but uh, I'm going to make a case that it would be best for us to make the change. So those are the things that we're going to talk about. So I'll teach, uh, you know, until about maybe quarter past or, you know, 20 past, somewhere in that range, and then I'll leave time for 10 to 15 minutes of questions. So you'll be thinking about good questions as we go. But we're going to look at uh, Wayne Grudem's chapter on systematic theology as a basis. I also want to tell you that Mark Dever, a friend of mine, has done a lot of good work on the questions of polity has made available to our church free of charge two booklets and they're over there uh, tonight um, so I they were available last week but I just forgot to tell you about it all right so you just learn if you're going to give out uh, free material tell the people all right so that's basic basic rule um, but on the back there you'll uh, see two booklets um, there's some overlap I think one was written and then another a little more in depth uh, so that you're going to find some similar uh, things but those would be really really good for you for your own personal study 
uh, and I'm also going to be using them uh, for some of the later classes as well. So at, at the end of our time, please remember to go over there and get one of each uh, for yourselves, okay? So we're going to talk tonight about church government in general, and I want to begin by just saying that it is obvious from looking around um, just generally in Christianity that there are a variety of models of church government. There's not just one. Uh, there are many different ways that different denominations approach the issue of the uh, delegated authority that we talked about last time. And by the way, never mind, you got them. Um, the, I gave maybe uh, 20 of last week's handouts to those that didn't get, get uh, any. If you had one and brought it home and then took one tonight, maybe just kind of quietly put it back at the end. And then someone who didn't get one last week, if you could pick it up. Um, sorry. <laughs> Again, you need to announce these things. No one should feel negative or guilty. We are not going over that uh, tonight. Um, but it's just for those that didn't get one last week, okay? Um, but tonight we're just going over the more boring-looking one that just has a white cover. And we will not finish this tonight. There's way too many pages, all right? So uh, we just begin by saying there are a variety of church government models. For example, the Roman Catholic model uh, has a worldwide uh, government under the authority of a single man, the Pope, all right? Uh, at, so at some point we may talk about how that came about, how the Bishop of Rome gained ascendancy over the bishops from other cities and how eventually he became known as the Pope the leader of the Roman Catholic Church? That's an interesting question. But I think it's uh, pretty clear from church history that that's not how it started. It's clear, in my opinion, from uh, the uh, pages of Scripture. Uh, for example, in Acts 15, you have the council in Jerusalem, and that's a very important chapter, I think, for the topic of church government because there you had a doctrinal problem, uh, the, the issue of do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And uh, elders and the apostles meet together uh, in, uh, with the church there in Jerusalem, meet together the elders and apostles to discuss uh, the question. Um, I'm going to make the case tonight that because there are apostles involved, uh, we can't take everything from that case and apply it to our present situation. The apostles are utterly, completely unique in redemptive history. None of us are apostles. I'm going to make that case tonight as well. And so they have a key role to play in church history. But I find it fascinating that even the apostles were a group. There was a plurality of them, and no one of them carried the day in the discussion. All right? The Roman Catholics, they would say that who was the first pope? Peter was the first pope because he got the keys, so to speak, on him. Christ built the church, so to speak. He's the rock on which the church was built, etc. That's the argument. Um, and so, uh, but if you look at, uh, at Acts 15, Peter has something to say something very important to say about the conversion of the Gentiles in his preaching to Cornelius. But you notice that doesn't end the discussion. There's a lot of discussion after Peter gets done speaking. He doesn't carry the day. He just contributes, you see. And so I think that that really strongly argues against him being what the Catholics consider to be a pope. Um, when the pope speaks ex cathedra from the so-called throne, uh, uh, he, he uh, ends all debate. And what he says uh, goes. That's orthodoxy. That's how it goes. Now, he doesn't speak from the, from the throne uh, ex cathedra very often. As a matter of fact, the last time he did, I think, was in the 19th century on uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So he doesn't do it often. And that's wise. If you're going to be perfect whenever you speak, you better be right. And so it's been a long time since any pope has done that. Long story short, that's one model of church government. There's also Episcopalian. Basically, it's kind of a spinoff from the Catholic. You just don't have the pope. 
And there you have bishops with regional authority and archbishops over them, etc. But there is a court, a hierarchy of authority above the local church. Okay? And that uh, hierarchy dictates key issues for the local church. They dictate who the pastor is. They dictate uh, matters of property and other things like that. And we've seen, sadly, on issues, let's say, homosexuality and women in, in the ministry, etc., how the Episcopalian Church has mandated that maybe perhaps conservative Episcopalian churches must do X, Y, and Z, and there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, that's just authority, and it comes from the top down, the Episcopalian model. Then you have the Presbyterian model. Uh, Presbyterian model, churches are granted uh, regional authority, uh, or sorry, churches grant regional authority to presbyteries and national authority to general assemblies. It's a system of what we call kind of interlocking courts. Again, a hierarchy of authority and power uh, coming from the local congregations, but then having authority over the local congregations and matters of church discipline and other things are, uh, it's kind of like our legal court where you have the Supreme Court, et cetera. It goes up to ever higher um, uh, authorities. That's the Presbyterian model. Um, and then you've got the congregational model, generally speaking. Now, I'm from New England, and congregational churches, that's a kind of a denomination. All right, but uh, I'm not speaking that way when I talk about polity. I'm talking about congregationalism, of which uh, congregational churches and Baptist churches and independent churches all hold that type of model. And that approach teaches that, uh, humanly speaking, there is no higher authority ecclesiastical authority than the local church. There is no, no authority over the local church, humanly speaking. We all acknowledge that Christ is an authority over the church. He is the head of the church. We all acknowledge that. We're not speaking about that. But we're speaking about, humanly speaking, there is no ecclesiastical church body that can tell us what to do. We are not denying the authority of the federal government to make certain decisions about our property or taxes or other things like that. We're not talking about that. But I'm saying concerning uh, matters of faith and practice and, and the buying and selling of property and who is the, who is the, the pastor and, and you know, bylaws and all that, that's, that's all done by the congregation and no one above the congregation can tell that congregation what to do. That's congregationalism, and we'll talk more about each of these models in due time. But I'm just laying out the fact that there just are different models. And each one of these mo- uh, the people, adherents to these my- models, feels <clears throat> that they can defend their model from the Scripture. So that's always interesting, isn't it? Um, the, the key question then, is there any one clear New Testament pattern for church government? Is the New Testament clear about this, establishing one pattern for all to follow? Or are there general guidelines and patterns established but not clear commands? Is there flexibility within the New Testament for various structures? What? I mean, what's going on here? Um, How do we understand that? Now, I would say that this issue of polity is not what we would call a core or central doctrine, the kind of thing that that, uh, if you don't believe properly about this, you're lost. You know, you're not a Christian. Like, for example, the deity of Christ would be. You know, that's why I've shared with you before that uh, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, uh, this is not a minor issue that they believe that Jesus is a created being. Uh, it's not a minor thing that they deny the deity of Christ. Jesus said in John 8:24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Well, Jesus is saying very plainly there, if you don't believe that I am the am that spoke to Uh, Moses out of the flames of the burning bush that I am the great I am that I am Yahweh I am God you will die in your sins so therefore it is very plain that the deity of Christ is one of those central doctrines this is not like that I believe in what we could call a hierarchy of certainty of truth this is not Grudem's phrase but mine I do not say there's a hierarchy of truth because something's either true or false 
You know, either God wants our church to have a plurality of elders or he doesn't. All right. Um, you know, either, you know, it's true of a, 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 any and every doctrine. There is no uh, uncertainty in heaven. Everything's equally true and, and, and understood there. However, we would say, uh, like the Westminster divines did, not all things are equally clear in and of themselves in Scripture. And nor are all things equally emphasized as fundamental doctrines. So uh, not everything is a core uh, doctrine, all right? Not everything's equally clear. Some things are clearer and more certain, other things not so clear. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying there's anything defective in the Bible if only God had written it more clearly. I'm not saying that. There's nothing wrong with the Scripture. But clearly, there must be something wrong with us in terms of understanding this so that we come to the scripture and we don't get it. We're not seeing it plainly. All right, Jesus said to the Sadducees, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So all errors come not because there's something wrong with the scripture or the power of God, but because something's wrong with us. So we all, all of us have some flaw in doctrine, some flaw in our theology. And it's just up to us, I think, to be humble and search the scriptures and to keep learning and growing. And, and to not be arrogant and think somehow our theology is fixed and set and it's all done. That's not to say that we can't uh, have certain convictions and believe that they're true from Scripture, but we should deal humbly with one another. And I've, I've perceived, you know, in um, discussions with uh, uh, evangelicals from other denominations, Presbyterians and Episcopalians and you know, Anglicans, etc., uh, people from other uh, denominations, that, you know, when you have those core doctrines like the, the deity of Christ, the inspiration, authority of the Bible and all that, you can have wonderful fellowship with those people. Uh, it's really sweet fellowship. We just can't do church together. You know, you really can't. And so you really do have to resolve this issue of church polity as you do with baptism. You have to resolve uh, this in order to have a local church and to have it run well. So that's why we're here tonight, and that's why we're going to be here over the next number of weeks to try to work this out. Um, it is very important. Turn the page, if you would. <clears throat> we don't conclude that it doesn't matter how the church is organized. It does matter. If there is a pattern established in the New Testament, uh, straying from that pattern will bring about long-term problems for the church. And so we need to do our work in this area, keep carefully looking at the biblical evidence. Okay, so I do think that there are problems with not following the biblical pattern. And if you would say, well, have there been problems, you know, uh, here at this church because we didn't follow the biblical patterns, I would have to say, yes, there have been problems in this church because we didn't follow the biblical patterns. They're not insurmountable, but they're there, and I'd like to see them addressed. Now, you may ask, why now? I mean, you've been here almost 10 years. Well, I'm just learning the value of patience in ministry. I think it just they're just a time for things. And this was, as I said, not a core doctrine. It wasn't that kind of thing that had to be resolved immediately. But I think the time has come for us as a church to address this. Um, specifically, what is driving me? I'm, I want you to know that a lot of the things we're going to teach here, I'm going to teach on Wednesday evenings, will be... Um, you know, in the sermons I preached last week and then again this week. So it's okay for, you know, repetition is, is fine. I'm, I'm not going to come up with whole new things on Sunday morning. So there's going to be some, some repetition. But uh, one of the things I, I just feel as I look at our church uh, polity is that there's a couple of issues that are not rightly addressed in the way we do things. For example, I believe that you don't have to go to seminary in order to exercise an elder-like ministry in the church. In other words, you don't have to be a vocational a vocational ministry. You don't have to be a career pastor in order to exercise that kind of elder-type ministry in the church. All right? So, therefore, there should be lay men who can lead in the church spiritually. The question is, what should we call them? What would the biblical terminology for such a person be? In our present polity, the only thing you can call such a one is a deacon. 
Um, and so, I, to me, I don't find that deacons are exercising spiritual leadership uh, in the New Testament. They're not entrusted with that responsibility. Um, since we're making the case that the plurality of elders, that, that, that these terms are totally interchangeable, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, these things, these are all the same office, then these lay leaders should be called elders. That's, that's fundamental to what we're talking about. The plurality then would be that there should be some lay leaders in the church who are on an equal footing or equal ground with the vocational ministers, and they come together and discuss things and pray about things and make decisions together. That's what we're talking about. Secondly, there's the issue of the committees. Um, unlike elders, where there's very careful uh, spiritual requirements laid out in the Bible for what an elder is and also, for that matter, for what a deacon is, there are no such requirements laid out for any role in a committee. I mean, where are you going to go? What scripture verses are you going to use? Because they're not found in the New Testament. Now, just because they're not found, committees, I mean, are not found in the New Testament doesn't mean that they're sinful or wicked or wrong. There's a lot of things that uh, are part of the church life that are morally neutral or maybe helpful, etc. Like trustees, for example, you have to have trustees to respond uh, uh, to the outside world in terms of signing for property and doing other things, et cetera. Some churches handle that in different ways, have to have articles of incorporation. They're just different things the government requires of us, and they're not sinful. We just need to do them. Um, and they're not specifically mentioned in the Scripture, et cetera. Those are examples. Committees would be like that for me. So, therefore, you will see in the bylaws uh, that we're proposing that committees are mentioned, but only in passing, that the elders, for example, may, if they think it best, organize committees uh, for certain purposes, and the committees then would have that purpose and would report to the elders. Um, but as it is in your standard kind of committee-run church or a church where there are uh, important committees, uh, they make a lot of important decisions that those responsibilities are entrusted to them by the congregation. They make important decisions, but there's no spiritual guidelines for the people that people those committees, that sit on those committees. Who puts them on the, on the committee? Ultimately, the church does, but who before that? Come on, you know. You know our polity. The nominating committee. Who is that? I don't know who that is. All right. Um, there are rules of how the nominating committee. Do you not see? And these things are all extrapolations. They're not found in the scripture. And for me, I just think a simple church model is best. Let's just get back to the plurality of elders. And, and uh, therefore, if the elders want to have a committee, to, let's let's take a, a good example would be a health fair. We just had the health fair. All right. The elders don't necessarily want to micromanage the health fair. They don't want to look into every little detail. There are some people who've been doing the health fair for years. You may gather a, a bunch of people together and say, hey, do a health fair, please. And they, the elders would have the authority to say, you know, do it this way or that way or whatever, but the rest is up to you. Do it like you've done, et cetera. So that would be kind of the health fair committee, and they'd be there for a purpose, et cetera. There are other ways you could do committees, et cetera. But these are two, I think, of the compelling reasons why I think it's good for our church to consider a change in polity, all right? Because laymen who want to exercise that kind of a spiritual ministry in the church should have a proper biblical title, and because committees tend to have too important, too great an importance in churches like ours that is not supported from the New Testament, and neither are there any spiritual guidelines for uh, the people that sit on those committees. All right, so that's generally where we're at. Um, let's get into uh, biblical church officers now. Uh, what is a church officer? And we're going to find in the scripture and we're going to find in many of the church of Baptist confessions and others. And you're going to find in our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith message. And you're going to find in Grudem. Um, ultimately, as I said, you're going to find in the Bible two church officers, two elder and deacon. That's what you're going to find. That's what the New Testament sets up. Now, first of all, what is an officer? Wayne Grudem says a church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. 
uh, Grudem makes some excellent points. Such people need public recognition in order to fulfill their responsibilities. For example, it would not be appropriate for people to wonder week from week who was to receive the offering and deposit it in the bank or for various people to argue that they had been gifted to take that responsibility in any particular week. Uh, the orderly functioning of the church requires that one person be recognized as having that responsibility. Uh, similarly, the pastor who is responsible to do Bible teaching each Sunday morning must be recognized as having the right and responsibility to do that. It's not shocking to you, I hope, to see me get up at a certain point in the service and walk up the stairs. That's not, I hope that's not shocking at this point. I've been here long enough, all right? So, um, and, but if I started to do that and someone shoved me hard down into the pew and ran up and started to preach, now that might be shocking. It'd be shocking to me, I mean, you know, um, at any rate. Uh, on the other hand, it's not shocking if I'm sitting there peacefully smiling and somebody gets up and their name's printed in the bulletin. You just have some indication that I, that I have asked them to preach that particular morning as Chris Colley did for us a few weeks ago. Very well, I might say. Thank you, Chris. Um, but again, everything should be done decently and in good order. That's the point. The KJV's translation there in 1 Corinthians 14.40. There is a beauty to order. And if you were to get up in heaven, you would not see chaos. You would see beauty and order and concentric circles and things like that. There's just a tremendous order and beauty in the holiness of heaven. And so therefore, the church, I think, should reflect that kind of order, that kind of beauty. Um, other gifts uh, do not need public recognition. They just need to be exercised, like the gift of helping or hospitality or faith. You know, I'm not saying that there are not certain aspects of hospitality that don't benefit from organization, but I'm just saying many of the gifts, you don't need an office of hospitality giver in order to do that. You just can do it. But there are some other offices that it's beneficial for the church to recognize. Now, let's start with this uh, office of apostle. Now, I said that there are two elder and deacon, and I believe that there are two now. But there was a time... Um, that there was this office of apostle. Um, it was a unique time in redemptive history. Uh, the unique role and responsibility was to speak and write words that were themselves the very words of God in an absolute sense. Thus, apostles had the right to uh, write words that became scripture and were immediately authoritative. This proves the fact that we should not expect this office, office to continue today, for no one can add to the words of scripture. Now, there are sometimes a general use of the word like William Carey, the apostle uh, to India or something like that. I actually don't use that, the term that way. I just don't. I just so respect the office of apostle that was set up in the New Testament. For me, the key issue isn't just uh, the right to write scripture or to speak authoritatively in that way as a prophet would, but I think it really does zero in on the physical incarnational life of Jesus. I really think that that's, you know, when you come to an apostle, you're dealing with, the fact that, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. First John 1, he says, you know, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have handled, which we have heard with our ears, what our eyes have beheld, this we proclaim to you. This is something only an apostle can say, you see. And so therefore, all of the New Testament, the, the New Testament teaching about Christ, all of that comes ultimately from the apostles. I acknowledge that Mark and Luke were not apostles, whereas Matthew and John were. But didn't Luke get his, um, his information ultimately from the apostles? Certainly from eyewitnesses, but it was an apostolic in, uh, trust that was given to him, uh, to Luke. And, and most people can see, uh, New Testament scholars, that Mark... Mark is writing from Peter's perspective and under the authority of Peter the Apostle. So, um, and then Paul was as one untimely born an apostle, but I think all of it is focused on the physical incarnational life of Jesus and especially uh, their eyewitness to his bodily resurrection from the dead. 
they were his witnesses concerning that physical resurrection from the dead. This is the issue of the apostles. So I know that there are some churches today, you might see them in an urban setting or some other, you know, that use the term apostle. You might see it in the newspaper, advertise apostle so-and-so preaching this and that. I just don't think it's a helpful title. I don't think it's, I don't think it's right. I think if you look closely at it, um, you know, the evidence is that you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' physical bodily life on earth. And that would just flat out scare me if they're still maintaining the claim that they had seen that. I'd be like, okay, because it does say, though we have not seen him, we love him. Okay, you know, this is kind of thing. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I believe that Jesus is coming back and we're all going to know when he comes back. You're not going to have to wonder. You don't need any faith, no faith required. It's going to end human history. So therefore, I do not think these folks are apostles. In other words, next time we see Jesus, he's coming back. Amen. So long story short, they did not see Jesus physically with their eyes. Therefore, they're not apostles. All right. So, yeah, there's some certain uses of the word apostle in the New Testament. But this is the office of apostle I'm speaking in that regard. Okay. The qualifications, having seen Jesus after his resurrection with one's own eyes, being an eyewitness of the resurrection. Many scriptures testify to this. I'm not going to read them. Page three. Turn the page if you would. You can just look those up. But those are just examples of of eyewitnesses uh, to the life of Christ. By the way, that was an important thing. I mean, you think about, uh, remember um, uh, Mary, I think it was, that anointed Jesus, and that's what really got Judas upset. In every one of the Gospels, it's right after the anointing of Jesus with that expensive perfume worth a year's wages that Judas knew the game was up. I mean, if Jesus is going to be wasting money like this, why stick around? I really don't think he loved Jesus. I don't think he believed in Jesus. He was a devil, John chapter 6. He was in it for the money. And once you're pouring money like that all over the ground, he has had it. He's going to find another way to make money, namely turn Jesus in. So he is gone. Uh, He leaves. But you remember what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, "Um, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing for me. She's prepared me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. In memory of her. Now, how did he know that? Well, because there were eyewitnesses there, and those eyewitnesses wrote down what she did. And so Jesus, uh, just with that foresight, prophetic foresight as the Son of God, knew that we, 20 centuries later, would know about what she did. So there were little, I said those apostles were like little camcorders. They were just taking in what Jesus had said and done. And they didn't remember at the time, they didn't understand at the time, but they were there, and that was all that was needed. Later, the counselor would come and he would call to mind what Jesus had said, and they would have a perfect memory of all of those things. But they had to live it first. And you know why? Because space and time, history matters in the Christian faith. You know, we're not kind of Buddhists like denying a bunch of stuff. We, we really believe in bodies. We believe in history. We believe in time. And Jesus really did do these things, and we, he really needed eyewitnesses, and it's all true. And that's a beautiful thing. So in the whole chain of our, of our salvation, the first link uh, to Jesus, to what he did, are the eyewitnesses, those apostles. Why am I going, belaboring this? Friends, there are going to be no apostles in our church, okay? Nobody should aspire to the office of apostle. It's finished. It's done, okay? That's all I wanted to say about that. Anything else about that? I'm, I'm just going to skip all the rest of this teaching on apostle and just get right to elders. Unless some of you have a hankering to be an apostle, we can talk afterwards. Or... I want to rise as high in Christ as I can. So. Yeah, well, I'm telling you right now, there's a ceiling on that one. Whether it's uh, a, a glass ceiling or what it is, I don't know. But uh, you, 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 you know, you, yeah. Well, you know, I'm finding actually there's a lot of things that are impossible. It's impossible for God to lie, for example. And it's impossible for him to contradict his word. So bottom line is uh, that one, that one's finished. However, we do have elders and deacons. Uh, we do have those, those roles. Um, let, me, let me say a word about, about elder. We made the case last time uh, and also in my sermon last week uh, that these, these, uh, this term um, 
is interchangeable, elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. The reason for that uh, is that I, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to think of a hierarchy or different classes of ecclesiastical officers. I just don't think that that's the right way to look at it. The idea of archbishop, etc. Uh, there you have a godly man, let's say, from church history uh, who gains uh, a great deal of influence, a renowned preacher, etc. Other congregations start going to that individual for advice. He starts to have a positional authority that was never intended. That's really how it all started. Um, little by little, like Chrysostom or somebody else in a certain city. And then, you know, you got all these little church plants and things are growing and they all started going to this one individual. And that's where the idea, I think, came from, bishop, archbishop, and all that. I just don't think it's biblical. Instead, we have this uh, pattern of plural elders. It is the pattern in all New Testament churches. Uh, Some say there are many patterns of polity in the New Testament. Grudem argues that there is a plurality of elders appointed in each local congregation, uh, and that's a single pattern of the New Testament, I would agree. Uh, key texts, many of them, but Acts 14.23 is one. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The key phrase here, each church and the word elders, okay? Um, now, of course, the top-down model, uh, they're going to point to the word appointed, right? So we'll get to that in due time. I'm going to make a case for congregationalism at the proper time. I'm, I'm not going to get into that tonight. Okay, I think there is a way to understand that. Understand this. Whenever you have an apostle involved, things get different. Okay, so, um, you know, if there seems to be an Acts 15, a Presbyterian model, I think it's just because of the role of the apostles at that point in the life of the church. Uh, But we can talk about that in due time. There are others. Acts 20, verse 17. This uh, is uh, the passage I'm I'm preaching on this coming Sunday, as I did last week. But uh, I've already made the case from Acts 20. Uh, of a um, plurality of elders. Uh, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. There's one church in Ephesus. There is a plural group of elders. Titus 1.5 is very plain here. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The words in every town then shows that each local congregation wants to have a plurality of elders. So that's it, plural elders. It's been noted that the singular form of elder is rare in the New Testament and no instance overturns this pattern of plural elders in each congregation. Turn the page. Um, Whenever you have an elder, you're dealing with specific aspects of elder life, but never is there a contradiction of the idea that these guys were doing their, uh, their work. Uh, in in a group of elders. For example, if anyone desires to be an elder, he desires a good thing. That doesn't deny plurality of elders. It's just saying if one individual wants to be part of that group, that's a good thing, etc. An elder should be this, an elder should be that, does not deny that there should be a plural group of elders. It's just describing what those men should be like as they take that role. So 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Um, special safeguard, I think, for the public ministry of the word. There's an acknowledgement that elders are going to be a focal point of satanic attack. And uh, so while certainly they are sinners and able to sin, there is a provision here in 1 Timothy 5 for an accusation to be brought against an elder because they, they very well might sin. Yet there are, there's a special protection for them as well because Satan knows very well that sometimes just the appearance of evil is enough to finish a, uh, an elder type of ministry. And so just a false accusation can be enough. Paul was com- consistently falsely accused of many different things. You know, he even reports this. He says, uh, why not say, Romans 3, as we're being slanderously reported as saying as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. 
Uh, he says that right in Romans 3. So, in other words, he claims that there's a lot of false accusations against his ministry. I mean, they, didn't they say the Jews said that he had brought uh, an uncircumcised man into the temple area? He never did that. And so, you know, there are false accusations. So, First uh, Timothy 5 says, if you're going to have an accusation against an elder, it needs to be brought by two or three witnesses. But again, there's that uh, word elder. By the way, First Timothy 5.19, I think, is an important verse for how the congregation does maintain a certain level of authority generally over individual elders. Uh, concerning the issue of sin and church discipline. Ultimately, church discipline, the discipline passages are strong, <clears throat> strong um, support for congregational polity. Uh, there's no supreme court above the local congregation. Jesus doesn't establish one in Matthew 18. There is none. Uh, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the congregation. When the congregation makes a decision, it's final. There's no, there's no court of appeals you're going to go to. And, so, and that's true of elders as well. Um, so the elders um, can be disciplined uh, by the congregation uh, if need be, unfortunately, or sadly for their personal case. Titus 1.6, an elder must be blameless, etc. Um, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. These are just examples of the word elder appearing in the singular. That's all they are. That's what these verses are strung together for. Second uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, etc. It's interesting that John calls himself there not an apostle but an elder. He is both but he really just embraces that title. I think he was the last of the apostles, and uh, he just knew that that office was finished. And so he's embracing the office that will remain after he's dead and gone, and uh, that is this office of elder. Um, but anyway, the point is none of these examples of elder, singular, overturns the pattern of plurality of elders. That's it, five uses and never a sense that an elder was established alone in a congregation. By contrast, however, the plural form occurs 16 times to refer to local church leadership. It, it occurs more than that in the New Testament, but generally having to do with Jewish leadership, like the elders asking, coming to a town and asking Jesus to do something, etc. So that was Jewish eldership. And to some degree, it could be that that's the backdrop even of the New Testament model as well. Uh, back in the days when uh, Moses needed help and, and you know his father-in-law said, this isn't good, you need some help and choose some men to help you, etc. I think that set up the pattern of elders. You're going to see elders in the, in the book of Deuteronomy and all that. So it's in the Old Testament, but oh, I'm just looking at the New Testament now. Um, 16 times. So you've got five uses of the singular word elder all of them just speaking about an individual man in the context, I believe, of plural eldership. All the rest, it's plural eldership. So I think that's pretty overwhelming, the case of plural eldership. Uh, good examples here. First um, Timothy 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So there you've got the word uh, plural elders and then the word church singular. Or James 5.14 is a very clear example, I think. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here's a sick individual who's going to care for the person spiritually during this time and even physically. Um, you know, uh, he's a member of a church. Uh, there's a group of elders looking out uh, for him or caring for his case. Uh, first uh, Peter 5, um, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering. Be shepherds, plural, of God's flock, singular, that is under your care, serving as overseers, etc. So there, there's this pattern of plural elders, shepherds, under shepherds, under Christ, one flock. James and First Peter are general epistles given to wide geographical region, implying that a plurality of elders is the expected norm throughout the Christian church. It's not just a, you know, it's not an aberration. It really is going on all over the place, everywhere. Uh, other name for elders, we have pastors, overseers, and bishops. Why would I advocate elder as opposed to these titles? Okay. Well, I think a lot of it just has to do with the truck that comes with the word, the baggage, let's say, that comes with the word. 
Uh, we could call them all pastors, um, but I think you know when you're changing from the polity we've known for many, many decades here over, it, it implies almost that all these men went to seminary. That's kind of the way that people tend to think. A pastor is somebody who went to seminary. Uh, God forbid that we should use this word, but a professional, you know, this kind of thing. Um, or somebody gives their full time to it. I'm not saying that you can't rehabilitate the word. There's nothing wrong with rehabilitating a word. Another argument against using the word pastor is that it isn't actually a very common word compared to elder. Elder is much more frequent in the New Testament. It's really, it really only appears in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. So it is there. It's a, value, a valid title. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's just not the common title. Why not bishop? Well, you ask me, you want to call us bishops? I mean, I personally would struggle with that a lot. Um, but talk about all of the truck that comes with that word. I mean, I was raised in a Roman Catholic church, all right? And I, to me, it would just take a long time to rehabilitate that word, all right? And to run it through the ringer and, and so that we're, th- we're all clear now and bishop is okay. I think it would be a long time. So for all those reasons, we're te- we tend to focus on this word elder, so, et cetera. Overseers, again, uh, I don't know. Uh, Tom, have you ever known overseer as a title? No. I really haven't. <laughs> Bishop. <laughs> Sorry I asked, all right? I'm never sure what Tom is going to say next. Okay, right, go ahead. Bishop, no. Bishop, no, all right. So, see, that's... All right, move, moving on. It's, it's good to know when to move on. Rabbi, I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. All right, so... I notice that rabbi is not on the list, Tom. Okay. All right. These terms are used interchangeably. Pastor is the most unusual of these. Uh, the verb form shepherd is in there frequently. I think uh, there is clear evidence that these terms are interchangeable. The, uh, the elders, presbyteros, that's where we get the word Presbyterian comes from, are sent for in 2017. But later, in 2028, it says, Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you episkopos, overseers. Be shepherds. That's a verb form. Uh, it's not the pa- the pastors don't it doesn't it doesn't use the noun form but it's basically shepherd the church of God which he bought with his own blood. So basically these terms are used interchangeably. Titus uses the terms interchangeably. An elder, a presbyteros, must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer, episkopos, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. How seamlessly we shift from talking about a presbyteros to an episcopos. They're just the same. They're just same the same person. So those two, I think, are sufficient, Acts 20 and Titus 1. These are interchangeable terms. All right, uh, functions of elders. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday. This is Sunday sermon. So um, it's a different order. I start with uh, preaching and teaching the ministry of the word on Sunday. Um, but at any rate, to uh, govern the New Testament churches under the authority of Christ, there is a leadership function, 1 Timothy 5:17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, an overseer must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there's clearly a management or leadership function going on there uh, in terms of the life of an elder. Uh, again, 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Uh, not uh, greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples. So clearly there's a leadership there, but it's, uh, as all New Testament leadership is, servant leadership. 
Um, Hebrews 13, 17, another important verse on this. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So these are various uh, verses that show the function of elders is to govern New Testament uh, churches under the authority of Christ. What do we mean by govern? Well, we'll talk much more. We'll talk uh, in great detail about that in, in later in this course. But they're just decisions that need to be made. Um, they just are. They're just, I mean, small decisions, big decisions, all kinds of decisions. You know, I mentioned the health fair. You know, should we even have a health fair? Should we have 60 health fairs in the, you know? I think not, okay? Anyone that gets involved in the health fair would know and I think say amen to that, okay? We don't need uh, one every four days, all right? Um, there's just some wisdom. Uh, there, there's all kinds of decisions that have to be made. Should we start this kind of ministry? Should we venture forth in this direction? How many new ventures can we handle as a church? You know, how should we spend uh, spend the money? What are some different different aspects? There's congregational feedback. There's a loop, uh, the things that the congregation does and the things that the elders do. But... Um, I think we all readily assent to the fact that pure democracy is neither taught in the Bible, uh, nor is it efficient, nor do you want it, friends. Trust me on that. All right, I can't tell you how many decisions are made through the week, and you're just glad they're made. Just hope they're made well. And if they're made badly, you'll be the first to, well, some will be the first to tell us. And we were constantly oversight, and there's all kinds of things going on, but let me tell you. Would you want to be here every day voting on a string of 85 things? Would you really want that? Absolutely not. And the real issue is it's not taught in the Bible. We don't see that pattern in the Bible. There is clearly leadership throughout the Bible. God raises up leaders, and they lead. Um, and it's, it's very plain in that regard. So elders do that leading. Um, to shepherd the people of God, that is care for their souls. Really, what is, what is Christ doing? He is saving souls. We have learned, and we emphasize, can't say it enough, salvation is a process justification, sanctification, glorification, all right? Elders are all over that process. They're completely involved in that process. In terms of justification, they are the torchbearers. They are holding, holding the responsibility that the church must be evangelistic. We need to be evangelizing lost people. And elders need to ensure that that's going on. They need to set an example. I'm talking about all this on Sunday. You're going to get it twice, but it's okay. Um, frankly, after about two or three weeks of me talking like this, you'll hear about all the themes I've got to say. And I'm not holding back because I think you need to hear them many, many times. And I think the more you hear them, then you're going to start trying them on from different angles and et cetera. But, uh, you know, evangelism and then sanctification, there's just an ongoing care of souls. There's an ongoing shepherding that goes. Sin is dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's around us all the time. And so counseling, encouraging, warning about sins, just being involved in different aspects of life, shepherding. Uh, I'll talk about that on Sunday. Acts 20 has some good shepherding verses in it, so come and hear the sermon on Sunday, God willing. Uh, teaching the Word of God. Again, Acts 20 has a lot to say, but it's not among the verses I've shared here. First Timothy 5.17 talks about those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, it was he who gave some of the apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, I think is a good way to understand that. They, they, they are pastors and they're teachers. Uh, the, uh, the elder must be able to teach. Uh, Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Uh, my basic idea on that is that not all elder teaching is created equal. There are different levels of elder teaching. The elder must be able to teach. And it's very plain also from James 3.1, not many of us should be teachers. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, it says. So what that means is that there's a class of people raised up by the gift of teaching and separated 
And they are uh, not all teachers or elders, by the way, but they must have that gift of teaching. They must be able to teach. What does that tell me? It tells me because it's such a small number of people that have that gift and are identified that we must continually resist that American tendency to say you are what you achieve. Your value is connected to what your title and your role is and what you can achieve. That is so false. And we're constantly fighting it. That's why people struggle with the woman's issue, with other things. They just say, see, worth and value wrapped up in what your job is and what your title is and what you can achieve. It is utterly untrue. Our worth and value is tied to our creation in the image of God and our regeneration and conformity to the image of Christ by the Spirit. That's where our value comes from. It does not come from what we can achieve. All right? So when we are very, very old and weak and infirm and feeble in the nursing home and not doing much more than praying at that point and maybe not even doing that if we're not clearly in our right minds or something like that, we will still be of infinite worth and value to Christ. Let's, not, let's just banish that weird way of thinking that pragmatic way of thinking that has taken over our country. It's just totally false. What does it say to me? It says that these men that are raised up to be elders are no more valuable than anyone else in the church. No more valuable. You cannot at any moment do anything better than what God wants you to do at that moment. It's impossible. As a matter of fact, if you don't do what God wants you to do, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're actually sinning. You look at uh, that passage concerning Saul. and It's like, oh, I saved all these animals to offer sacrifice. No, that does not work. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so whatever role you play, play it. Whatever your gifted um, uh, ministry is, do that ministry. Okay? So let's banish forever the idea that elders are going to be uh, worthy of, of uh, greater honor on judgment day because they were intrinsically, because they're elders. They will be worthy of honor on Judgment Day if they were faithful to what was entrusted to them by their master. Do you see what I'm saying? That's important. So at any rate, I, you know, I think this idea of able to teach shows how it's just a small number of people who are going to do this ministry and many who are not gifted with the gift of teaching are every bit as valuable and important in the body of Christ. By the way, the first uh, Corinthians 12 passage about the body, you know, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you and all that supports this idea that I'm giving. Every part of the body is valuable and worthwhile. So must teach the Word of God. I'll say more about that on Sunday. Qualification for elders. This is a familiar um, thing. Let's just stop here. Let's just stop here. It's, uh, I've got 17 past, and um, we'll get to this next time. Questions about what we've shared so far? doesn't just have to be about this. could be just about what's been on your mind as we've been thinking about polity, about anything. All right, that got you. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> I opened it up. Anything, anything. I have a question kind of regarding the establishment of elders in, in two specific areas. One is when you're getting elders for your church or establishing them or, or whatever you want to say it, um, how, uh, how are elders um, chosen or uh, recognized? And additionally, is it only elders within the body, or is there provision for bringing strangers to your church in as elders? And then kind of the second area would relate to missionaries um, and their role in establishing churches, in some sense appointing elders for those churches, and then somehow the disconnect, if, if we're following a more of a congregational model, the disconnect between what the missionary is doing and the churches they're establishing and the responsibility or tying into the parent church, if you will, as far as you know, doctrine. Once he has, once a missionary establishes an elder, for instance, is the elder you know now head of that church, and he has no responsibility to adhere to any of the doctrine of the missionary or of the 
sending church from the missionary, mm. things like that. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of questions. So, Feel free to answer. Any, any one of them and then, all right. <laughs> Chris, you want to say anything about that? Because that's really what you're doing, isn't it? I will say that that is, um, that's been something that has been very important to us. How can we have more accountability to the church here? Because we are definitely an extension of the church. And for us to do something that is contrary to what we're doing here is definitely out of line. Um, We are basically going through things with the people there trying to help raise them up with the same way we would here. I mean, there's some issues of contextualization, but as far as the requirements, everything is going to be the same. I mean, they will be their own governing body. We are just kind of the force behind that, trying to bring it to come about, and got to have patience. Yeah. It's going to take a long time. Patience, and uh, you may be asking, uh, James, about two transitional uh, situations, okay? For example, how does a church like ours uh, identify its first set of elders, for example? That's a transitional question. Um, Another uh, transitional question is a church planting situation, whether cross-cultural overseas or even, you know, in a city here in the U.S. If there's a church planter there and they're starting a new church and all that, how do we do that? So they're transitional. I would start with this. Just it's good to know what you're shooting for, what you want. I mean, what you want that church to be like 50 years from now, if the Lord tarries, so that that you can, you know, remember how it says in Acts 20, I didn't hesitate to teach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. So polity then should be something taught to this growing church, this growing group of, of new disciples so that they can at least know what they're shooting for. And so the goal of the church planter, let's say, of the missionary would be to have a congregational uh, church. Uh, that has a plurality of elders who meet the qualifications of First Timothy 3. And we know that, <clears throat> you know, I planted the seed of Paulus water, but God gave the growth. It is only God who can do that. The Holy Spirit makes them overseers. We know he doesn't make, it, uh, make them overseers overnight. They don't, they don't uh, you can't actually, you're not supposed to lay hands on someone who's young in the faith. So there actually, ha- there's implied a transition time in which somebody, is going to be looking out for that. Now, what I think it does argue for is then what group or individual or what approach you're going to take to plant that church. And maybe you're going to have a group, let's say, of elders that would be involved. You know, I, I, I think that at that point you're saying, is there value in just constantly having the plurality of elders even on the mission field? So that might a- ask some interesting questions. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a solitary church planner in a certain place. Um, but if you're going to have that, then he's going to have a good amount of authority um, because he's the only one that meets that elder qualification. Now, if you take an existing church like ours, it's a very good question how you identify your first, um, your first elders. I think the thing we need to acknowledge is that this church has been around for a long time. And so we do have gifted, godly, lay leaders who just aren't identified yet formally by the church as elders. That's why we're moving. And, and by the way, let me tell you just how delighted I am about that. You should be thanking God for that. I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's great to have godly men who can do that role. As a matter of fact, I know a number of good friends who have gone out from this church and are now pastoring other churches who don't have that at all. And so they're almost like church planners, a little bit like Chris. You know, they're almost starting from scratch. They don't have any men there that could meet those qualifications. That's a sad thing, but that's an issue of prayer. So for us, we need to acknowledge those men are already here. What's the best way to enlist their wisdom and to identify them? Ultimately, the pattern that you have in the New Testament church, the pattern we're looking at here, is that I think the elders are going to present to the church men that the elders believe are elders, okay? And understand that it's something the elders, I think, should do, all right? 
because there may be ish, issues privately in somebody's life that they should not, don't need to be made public, but they just don't necessarily want to be an elder at the present time or can't be, et cetera. So there's going to be issues in which I think the elders should be entrusted with the responsibility from the church to filter candidates, to look at it, to pray over it, and then realize the ultimate pattern. Look at Jesus. What did he do? He went up and spent all night to, with his heavenly father in prayer saying, Lord, you know, and then he came down and, 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 and chose the 12. And so there's a clear focus there. Uh, Acts 1, after Judas is dead, before they cast the lots, this is before Pentecost now. Let's remember, it's before the gift of the Spirit. But they did say, show us which of these men you have chosen. That's, that's got to be the mentality. That's my mentality. Show us who you have chosen. You see what I'm saying? But I think the basic approach in plurality is that there's godly uh, wisdom and counsel. So we would be seeking godly counsel from those that God has raised up. We just haven't identified them yet as formally as elders. So I hope that's somewhat of an answer to the many questions. How, how many did I get? Two out of three? Five I really out of six? Two, okay. All right. That's, that's fine. Other questions? Yeah, Margo. Well, I, first of all, I think it should be publicly recognized that as far as I know, as long as we've been here, last week was the first time in the history of this church that you made it through a whole outline with time left to spare. <laughs> 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 um, but having said that, our home fellowship has been discussing the sermons this semester, and so we had a lot of um, good discussion about last week's sermon on this whole polity issue at our home fellowship. And... Um, I want to express just the excitement that we have, how this uh, is so encouraging that it reflects a maturity in our church that we're um, able to address this issue and, and just the health of our church that we need to really thank God for. Mm-hmm. Um, and can, I, can I add to that before you go on? We had a, de- a deacon's meeting last night and talked openly about these for, uh, things for a, for a long time, and there was a tremendous amount of unity and joy and um, uh, there wasn't any uh, problems. And let me tell you, I've been here almost 10 years. It was not that way early on here, not at all. Uh, those deacons' meetings were some of the hardest experiences of my life. Um, but uh, when you have, I think you establish the, the deity of Christ, his, his authority, and especially the clear teaching of the word, it's a wonderful thing to see. So I just want to strengthen what you're saying. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we also really were excited about the way that this is being, that we're going about this. And... Um, that, it's, that it is being real, really well handled, so I want to say that. But, um, and I'm thankful that those books are available because we took them home last week. And so I realized that I'm glad you did. a lot of the questions <laughs> that I think are going to come up are really in those books. Yeah. And so I do encourage people, yeah. now that they're available, yeah. to take them and read them. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping that some of these questions that we came up with okay. um, will be addressed later. So I'm not really expecting you to answer them tonight. But just to, yeah. um, and I'm not sure I understand all these questions either. Okay. Well, Choose a good one. The, the difference between being elder-led and elder-ruled, yeah. and which would we be? Okay, very good question, very good question. The difference between an elder-led church and an elder-ruled church is in the issue of congregational polity. It, it resides in the authority and the, and the role of the congregation. An elder-ruled church basically denies congregational polity. Uh, it doesn't give the congregation really a, a, a right to have any authority in any decision. Basically, the congregation's job alone is to follow the leadership of the elders. That's an elder-ruled church. That is not the model we are recommending. We are recommending instead elder leadership in the context of congregational polity. So what do I mean by that? Well, it will become clear as we go on, but the congregation has a certain role and the elders have a certain role. All right, the elders, uh, sorry, the congregation it's their job to establish who the members are of the church, okay? The members 
are voted on by the congregation, okay? They also are responsible for a church discipline, okay, who the uh, members can't be because of sin, et cetera. So that's something that the congregation does. And I think the congregation officially establishes elders as their elders. So in other words, I wasn't an elder in this church or pastor until the church voted me in. You see what I'm saying? I was invited by the search committee to come up and preach an or, uh, a, a um, candidating sermon, so I was not out of order to do that. But if I had come in the intervening weeks or presumed to take a role that the church hadn't entrusted to me yet, that would have been presumptive on my part. However, after the church voted, then I was established in this role as senior pastor here. So that's what I believe is the difference between elder-led and elder-ruled, okay? The congregation establishes elders. And the congregation, as I said last time, passively observes the elder ministry to be certain that it's biblical and is available in case there is the need to discipline elders. Again, when I, when I say passively, I think it's obnoxious um, or offensive for that role to be front and center all the time in ministry, all right? Any more than, you know, you want somebody to come up to you as a man, let's say, I want you to know I'm praying every hour that you not commit adultery on your wife, all right? And it's like, well... Thank you. I mean, what else are you going to say? I mean, you know, but it's just, it, you know, it's, we don't, we don't do that. We can pray, but we don't, we're not keeping that up front, you know, or somebody to say, I'm praying for you that you not preach heresy this morning. All right. So please, I'm praying that you will not preach heresy. Thank you, brother. Please keep praying that. And to me, you know, that's just not a good way to be, even though it's possible that I might preach heresy, etc. You know, my rejoinder is generally be, I am praying that you, if you should happen uh, to hear right doctrine will not fail to put it into practice, but actually will live it out, etc. You know, look, I mean, we don't want to have warring words of encouragement and exhortation. In- instead, what you want is a general atmosphere of love and acceptance, but you know that the congregation is there, and the congregation has a role to play if the elder sins. That's all I'm saying. And if the elder doesn't teach accurately, they should be being Bereans, searching all the time to see if what's being taught is faithful to the Scripture. So elder rule, elder led. We're going elder led, not elder rule. Yeah. Yeah, in the bylaws, and by the way, you're going to get the, uh, please hear me and understand that we're handing out on Sunday after worship um, the draft form of the bylaws. So you have a lot of time to look at them. We're looking at voting on them in August. All right, so you, you'll, my sense is by the August church conference, you guys are going to be like, all right, come on, you know, I mean, because, you know, you'll be ready. And then that's what we wanted. We were looking originally at May, uh, but that's too soon. So August is what we're looking at. We're going to take our time with this, but you'll have the document on Sunday. It's a draft. It can change now without any Robert's Rules of Order or whatever, just if we think it's best. There was a group of deacons and me that worked together on that. I think they're all here, um, the ones that worked on it. And so we have a prospective bylaws. It's nothing yet other than a draft form, but it's, it's probably pretty close to what is going to be presented to the church. And what does it say? It has elders having three-year terms, uh, c- uh, could have two of them in a row with a, a church, a kind of approval vote in the middle. So you have three years, the church votes, and you can have three more. And then you have to be off for a year, kind of a sabbatical year. Um, the vocational ministers do not need to submit to the three-year cycle or whatever just because, you know, they would lose their jobs. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a helpful thing at that point. Um, yeah, one last one, Susan, really quickly. 31. You said, um, I guess you've been here 10 years. And Almost. This is the time to do it. Um, I guess I'm sort of wondering, um, since, since adherence to a New Testament model mm-hmm. is really the basis for this, mm-hmm. I'm wondering what other ideas, you know, when you get the guts to do it, 
Um, you know, <laughs> one way to put it. I'm trying to suggest. I mean, I'm particular that would adhere to the New Testament model. I've always been very interested in hearing um, from somebody. Pretty much every church I've been to, um, how they deal with that New Testament idea of prophecy. You know, Paul says, um, above all else. Are you asking what do I think about the sign gifts? Is that what you're asking? Well, I don't know. You've opened it up, and so that's okay. really what I was thinking. I mean, if we're really going to try to adhere to that model, you know, that's always one aspect of the New Testament model I, I don't see too often. Well, I think that's pretty significant that you don't see it. So then the issue is, is God giving it, or is the church quenching the spirit? That is always the debate. And those that believe in sign gifts believe the latter, that the church is quenching the spirit. And if we would just get the sin out of the way, we would see a river of miracles and signs and wonders and all that. Uh, others believe that God sovereignly gave that to people who did, weren't expecting it. And, and Peter said, why are you looking at us as if by our own power of godliness we'd made this man well? I mean, Peter was a sinner, a great sinner. And yet God poured a river of miracle through him. And uh, there is a constant debate back and forth. The health and wealth people uh, say God always intends that you be healed, always. All right. So if you're not healed, it's a lack of faith. I've even heard some so far, go so far to say Paul's thorn in the flesh uh, was not removed because he did not have enough faith. Well, let me tell you something. If Paul the apostle did not have enough faith, it's not likely that any of us are going to do it. I understand the doctrine. I just don't accept it. That does not resolve the question of sign gifts. Uh, for me, though, I will say it's not a matter of guts or courage right now. It's a matter of trying to discern, you know, um, is it that we are quenching the spirit or is it that God is not giving these things? I tend to lean that he could sovereignly give them anytime he chooses. And therefore, you know, I know many godly people that, you know, they're not perfect. They're not sinless people. Um, but they're open to anything that God gives, and he's not given them the gift of miracles or tongues or any of those things. So we can talk about that a long time. Believe me, that's a debate that's gone on since the Azusa Street Revival. I would say over 100 years it's been going on. So we could continue to talk about that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your great mercy and kindness. Um, thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here tonight with such eagerness uh, to learn and grow. I pray that you continue to guide us and uh, lead us into all truth. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.